Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as well as reporting news from the front lines, we analyse updates from the US and the EU as decisions regarding funding Ukraine's war effort loom large in Western politics. And we speak to journalist Jen Stout about her reporting from Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 4th of December. One year and 283 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner, and our guest is Jen Stout, a journalist from Shetland who's covered the war in Ukraine since March 2022. Jen specialises in long-form reporting and is also a radio producer and photographer. I started by going through the latest updates from Ukraine. Let's start in occupied Luhansk, where Ukrainian drones have reportedly blown up a Russian oil depot. Video footage released on Sunday night showed plumes of smoke billowing into the sky from the facility in the city. Russian news agency RIA Novosti reported that a fire at the depot has since been extinguished and made no mention of any casualties. Ukraine is yet to officially comment. Over the weekend, there were further drone and missile strikes across Ukraine. Ukraine's air force said Russia launched 23 drones and a missile into Ukraine from occupied Crimea in the early hours of Monday. They said the KH-59 guided missile and 18 of the Iranian-designed Shahid drones were shot down, but did not specify what damage the attacks had done. Over in the east, Russia has launched a new assault from two directions on the heavily bombarded Ukrainian town of Avdivka. The mayor, Vitaly Barabash, said the current third wave of enemy assaults differs from the previous two in that they have conditionally opened two new directions. The launching of new directions proves that the enemy has been given a command to capture the city at any cost. Just 1,300 civilians approximately remain in Avdivka, compared to its pre-war population of around 30,000. Across the front lines, the cold weather is starting to have an impact on both sides. This is from the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, which reports that the poor weather conditions continue to slow the pace of Ukrainian and Russian combat operations across the entire front line, but have not completely halted them. They cite Ukrainian Ground Forces Command Spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Volodymyr Fityo, who stated that Russian forces actively use aviation in the Bakhmut direction when the weather permits it, and that the weather does not significantly affect Russian artillery fire in, in the Bakhmut direction again. One Russian mill blogger quoted by the ISW noted that in western Zaporizhia Oblast, Russian forces can only move on tracked vehicles and that Ukrainian forces continue intense artillery fire despite the poor weather conditions. Finally, the ISW notes that the Zaporizhia Oblast occupation official Vladimir Rogov amplified footage on December the 2nd that shows muddy roads on the Robotne Novoprokopivka Vobove line in western Zaporizhia Oblast, claiming that these conditions have practically immobilized Ukrainian wheeled vehicles, forcing Ukrainian troops to conduct infantry-only attacks. Moving on, Russia has been accused of killing two surrendering Ukrainian soldiers in an apparent war crime near the village of Stepove in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. The footage shows a group of men in Russian uniforms opening fire from close range on the unnamed pair and unarmed pair after they emerged from a dugout with their hands on their heads. The Ukrainian Army Strategic Communications Center said it possesses, quote, confirmed information, end quote, that the video showed the execution by Russian forces of unarmed soldiers. 
Ukraine's Prosecutor General's office said on Sunday that it launched a pre-trial investigation for violation of the laws and customs of war combined with intentional murder. There's actually been an update on this story that came out just before we came on air. The Ukrainian army has announced that Russian soldiers, the Russian soldiers accused of this crime have been killed. This comes from Alexander Stupin, spokesman for the Southern Tavria Army Group, who says... I can confirm that in the course of further hostilities, the group of Russian occupiers who committed this crime ceased to exist. Moving on, elsewhere, there's another worrying update from the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. A Ukrainian and International Atomic Energy Agency, that's the IAEA, officials have reported that the ZNPP completely disconnected from all external power sources for five and a half hours on the night of December the 1st or the 2nd. This marks the plant's eighth complete blackout, all under Russian occupation. The ZMPP during the blackout automatically switched to diesel generators to cool its reactors and power essential functions. Ukrainian nuclear energy operator Energoatom President Petro Kotin stated that Russia is not interested in the safety of the ZMPP as evidenced by Russian authorities' failure to follow the norms and rules of nucleus and radiation safety. The IAEA said that an external grid failure far away from the ZMPP caused the power failure, and its director general Rafael Grossi stated that this is the most recent that this most recent power outage is quote yet another reminder end quote about the plant's precarious nuclear safety and security situation. Turning now to look at a couple of stories about the Russian military, the British MOD is reporting that Russia could have suffered as many as three hundred and fifty thousand casualties. In its latest defence intelligence briefing, they say that this gives an estimated range of 290 to, 200 to 350 total Russian combatant casualties. It added that a long-established culture of dishonest reporting in the Russian military has likely created a low level of understanding about total casualty figures among Russian officials and civilians. Just very quickly on that again, the Russian Defence Ministry has proposed changing rules in the calling up of civilians with health issues that, quote, do not have a significant impact, end quote, on their ability to fight. This proposal comes just days after Vladimir Putin issued an order to increase the size of the army by 170,000 people. Independent news outlet Meduja reported that the information has been published on the government's official legal a- legal portal. Their published documents do not specify the proposed changes, besides saying they are aimed at improving the current health requirements. And finally, the death of Russian Major General Vladimir Zavadsky has been confirmed by the governor of Russia's Voronezh region. I am convinced that the name of Vladimir Zavadsky, a courageous officer, a real general and a worthy man, will, for, will forever remain in the annals of glory of our fatherland. This comes from Alexander Gusev, who wrote on his telegram. The reports on his death, which we covered last week in a landmine explosion, emerged after Ukrainian Colonel Anatoly Stefan and a number of pro-Kremlin telegram channels also made the claims. However, Mr. Gusev did not comment on how Major General Zavadsky, this is the, he was the uh, deputy commander of the 14th Army, Army Corps, died. Just to put this in context, at least six other generals are thought to have died since the invasion in February 2022, and Russia is yet to officially comment on his death. Those are the updates from the front lines. Joe Barnes, can I go to you next? You've been looking at some of the diplomatic and political updates around the war. Joe Barnes. Thanks, David. And yeah, good good to hear your voice for so long. Um, So let's start with an interesting one, which is adding to this idea that Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and his top general, Valery Seluzhny, have been at some sort of loggerhead. So Vladimir Zelensky has now been accused of bypassing Seluzhny by communicating directly with subordinate officers. So the the Ukrainska Pravda newspaper has reported that President Zelensky has set up parallel lines of communications with Colonel General Alexander Sersky, who is the head of the ground forces, and Lieutenant General Mykola Olashuk, who is head of the air force. Um, and these lines of communications were said to basically go over Zeluzhny's head. And this is what a source, a person who the newspaper claimed was a person close to Zeluzhny's inner circle, said there is an impression that Zelensky has divided the armed forces into two groups, the good ones, commanded by Sir Ersky and other favourites, and the bad ones, who subordinate to Zeluzny. This greatly demotivates the commander-in-chief and, more, most importantly, prevents him commanding the entire military. So this report is the latest in what has been a spiralling 
issue and tensions between the two men after General Zaluzny's interview with The Economist, where he basically said that the war had reached a stalemate, and he said the war would not be, essentially would remain a, a stalemate until there was a, the introduction of a new technology that was able to sort of move the lines from either Russia or Ukraine. So yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to see how the politicians versus the generals fight seems to be going on as times are tough in Ukraine. So the counteroffensive didn't return the the desired sort of results, and Ukraine's heading into a, a long and hard winter. So yeah, it just seems to be a bit of a uh, bit more of that. Then let's move on to a claim by Ukraine's SBU security services that it had stopped former President Pedro Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, sorry, that's an auto correct in my notes, from leaving the country on grounds that Russia had planned to exploit a scheduled meeting between Poroshenko and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. So Poroshenko's political party, European Solidarity, said the former president had planned meetings in Poland and the United States and warned that the SBU had was becoming involved in politics. Poroshenko was turned away at a border post while trying to leave Ukraine on Friday. Remember, you can only leave via road and rail uh, at the moment, or ships as well, but uh, not many people take that as a passenger route. So an SBU statement said he had planned the meeting with Viktor Orban, who is considered Russia's closest ally in Europe. Hungary opposes EU sanctions on Russia, but has not blocked more than a dozen EU packages so far. It does not send weapons to Ukraine and continues to buy fossil fuels from Moscow. And you'll remember Viktor Orban was pictured shaking hands with Vladimir Putin recently, uh, the first sort of Western leader to do that since the outbreak of the war. And here is what the SBU had to say. So open quote, Russia planned to use the meeting like other working meetings with representatives of countries voicing pro-Russian narratives in psychological operations against Ukraine. Orban, the SBU said, systematically holds an anti-Ukrainian position, is a friend of Putin and seeks the removal of sanctions imposed on Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine. So under martial law, Ukrainian officials must first secure approval to travel abroad. So technically men of fighting age are blocked from leaving, but they also have stopped politicians basically going overseas amid fears of corruption. There's been quite a few sort of reports of high-ranking officials, whether they be in sort of regional or governmental leaving to basically conduct dodgy business overseas while the war effort is happening or even going on holiday, which is an interesting one. So the Parliament's Deputy Speaker, Alexander Koryenko, said Poroshenko's permission had been cancelled after he'd received a letter and he said he would not comment on that letter. Just to jump in there, Joe, uh, eagle-eyed listeners will remember that I spoke to Alexander Kornienko at the Labour Party conference pretty much about this issue, as other sources of ours in, inside Ukraine's parliament had brought up this issue, that they hadn't been, that they felt that they hadn't been able to travel abroad to do their business, yet politicians from Sluha Narodnia were able to. So this is something, this is an issue which we've actually been reporting on for some time now. But Joe, let's, let's continue. What's going on outside of Ukraine? Yeah, so elsewhere, the warnings are starting up uh, ahead of this month's European Council summit in Brussels, um, which, quite frankly, is going to be massive for Ukraine. So, first of all, there are divisions over the bloc's finances, which risk leaving Ukraine short of a planned 50 billion euro package of support. And then you have the Hungarian opposition to Ukraine being allowed to start its formal membership talks to join the EU. So first on Hungary, the opposition is well known. Um, Viktor Orban wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter over the weekend, that the European Commission's proposal for the talks to start, that's the accession talks for Ukraine, have no place on the European Council meeting's agenda. He argued letting Ukraine into the EU goes against the bloc's taxpayers, but also its farmers. So... um, the expectation if Ukraine is allowed to join, it's going to be the poorest country in the EU. So it will receive lots of taxpayer funded support. And also it is one of the biggest agricultural producers in Europe. It's known as sort of, yeah, the breadbasket of the world. So lots of the EU's farmers and there have been sort of protests in in various different parts of the world, mainly the neighbouring countries where farmers feel they're being outdone by business from Ukraine would be affected. But let's look at this more closely. I've been watching the EU now. I've been based in Brussels for almost six years, was watching it beforehand as part of my job. And actually, this one is a really hard one to guess what happens on. I normally have a pretty good accuracy rate when it comes to 
calling decisions at an EU level. Um, so Hungary itself has a tradition of not following through on publicly discussed threats in the behind closed doors portions of these EU Council meetings. But this time, the stakes feel and seem a little bit different. Um, so I spoke to a series of Hungarian ministers uh, recently on a trip to Budapest, and, and this time they all insisted they could not be bought with concessions. So lots of, whether it not be on Ukraine, but other issues, Hungary has always been perceived as one of these countries where it will act tough, it will act like a bad boy, all in order to secure more concessions. And often on various different, not say not just Ukraine, on day-to-day EU matters, that is often the case. But this time, the warnings from the Hungarian politicians I spoke to, so government ministers, defence minister, like they were all like, yeah, we can't be bought with concessions. So let's see. And then there is a battle over the 100 billion euro top up to the EU's budget which is being discussed and requested from the European Commission at the moment. Half of that is earmarked for Ukraine. So here there are a few problems. You have the recent election victory by the far-right populist leader Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. He is super Eurosceptic so clearly wouldn't back extra spending if he was head of the Netherlands government. But currently he hasn't formed the government. But the Dutch caretaker government led by Mark Rutte, the long-time Prime Minister, do have to sort of look and consider Gert Wilder's stance if he was to make a government. He is sort of favourite to become Prime Minister as it stands, but those coalition talks are going to take some time. And then there are concerns over a recent decision by the Constitutional Court of Germany in Karlsruhe that ruled that the government in Berlin had triggered a debt break, which is written into Germany's constitution, It has led to the cancellation so far of sort of 60 billion euros worth of planned projects on green and industrial projects. While Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, has said support for Ukraine is cemented and concrete, but other commitments can't be guaranteed, including the EU cash, which obviously brings questions over whether Germany can fund fund these extra budget commitments to the EU. So I will quickly just run through, which I didn't actually plan to do, but it segues into this nicely. I wrote a story, it was in Saturday's newspaper, about Germany seeking to reduce the amount it gives to a 20 billion euro planned fund for Ukrainian weapons. So I was I found I was managed to obtain a leaked document. It was a confidential non-paper. In it, Berlin argues the European Peace Facility uh, should take into account billions in military aid that it has donated to Kyiv bilaterally. So so far for context, the EPF, the European Peace Facility, has donated some 4.5 billion euros worth of weapons to Ukraine and has helped drill 34,000 Ukrainian troops as part of, of an EU training mission. Um, but yeah, the this German document, which is a non-binding positional paper, essentially, has raised some eyebrows because Berlin in it says military support for Ukraine can be provided either through financial contributions to the Ukraine envelope in the EPF or as direct deliveries of military equipment. The document adds that in-kind contributions should be fully credited against a member state's agreed contribution to the Ukraine envelope. So Germany currently contributes about a quarter of the funds towards the EPF. So the EPF has essentially ceased, this 20 billion fund would cease to exist if Germany was to count its bilateral aid towards its contributions to this, essentially. Uh, You only have to sort of look at last month, Germany announced that it would double its military aid to Ukraine. That's bilateral military aid, signing off on an 8 billion euro package. So yeah, that's just under half of the 20 billion. So yeah, that wouldn't exist with that. Um, And yeah, then let's go to more funding issues. And yeah, there's been a stark warning from the White House that US funding to Ukraine will run out by the end of the year if Congress and the Senate don't pull their fingers out and back Joe Biden's idea to give Ukraine more money in weapons, etc. So a letter from Shalanda Young, who's the White House's budget director, 
to congressional leaders warns that Russian gains on the battlefield would be more likely if Congress doesn't approve any new money for Ukraine. And in this letter, she writes, without congressional action, by the end of the year, we will run out of resources to procure more weapons and equipment for Ukraine and to provide equipment from US military stocks. There is no magical pot of funding available to this to meet this moment, we are out of money and nearly out of time. So Joe Biden has requested some $106 billion in emergency funding for his foreign policy priorities, and they include Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. But hardline Republican politicians, yeah, as I said, in, in, in the Congress, have refused to back any more US aid for Ukraine. So Shalinda Young, the budget director, she adds, cutting off the flow of US weapons and equipment will kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield and not only putting at risk the gains Ukraine has made, but increasing the likelihood of Russian military victories. Already, our packages of security assistance have become smaller and the deliveries of aid have become more limited. While our allies around the world have stepped up to do more, US support is critical and cannot be replicated by others. And then let's go to Bulgaria, where it's a slightly less amount of money, but a, another blockage in support for Ukraine. So in Bulgaria, the president has vetoed a deal to supply Ukraine with 100 armoured vehicles. The country's parliament um, had agreed a deal to send these older armoured vehicles alongside the armaments and spare parts to run them for free. But yeah, Bulgaria's sort of president has overruled his sort of prime minister who is an ardent backer of Ukraine. So Bulgaria's parliament can overturn the president's decision, but that requires a majority decision, which we're yet to see at the moment. And I will stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for talking us through all of that. There's a huge number of updates, far more than uh, potentially I'd anticipated when we started preparing today's podcast. So thank you so much for all that research. James Kilner, can I come to you next? Uh, you've been covering, uh, you've been looking at Ukrainian and Russian stories over the weekend. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. Yep, another busy weekend on the desk. So let's start with this, with the story that Joe was talking about. This is the uh, the sort of politics are back in, uh, in very much back in, in Kiev story. And there was a very strong example of this over the weekend. It was the mayor of, of Kiev, Klitschko, was, gave a couple of interviews to, to European journalists in which he openly criticised Zelensky. And that, that in itself wasn't such a surprise. I mean, he's been a political ally of Zelensky to some extent since the war started, but he's a supporter of Poroshenko and uh, they're definitely not aligned in, in peacetime. But it was his language that, that that was so important and so worth keeping an eye on and, and pricking your ears up about. He was saying that Zelensky was basically sort of moving towards an autocratic style of government. Central government was getting too strong and that the only bastion stopping Ukraine becoming an autocracy in many ways with the strength of the local mayors, etc. Obviously, talking up his own book here, he's the biggest local mayor in, uh, in, in the country. And he's also saying that Zelensky is becoming more unpopular and that he would eventually pay for his mistakes. Now, this is definitely code for his time in office is, is numbered. He did make the point that he, he wouldn't be calling him for him to resign during the war. But nonetheless, Klitschko is definitely saying that we're going to see a post-Zelensky Ukraine sooner rather than later. It is important to caveat this by saying that opinion polls still show strong support for Zelensky. Uh, and when I made a couple of calls yesterday about this to people in Kiev um, and Odessa, they said that the president still has the, you know, the, by far the majority of support, etc. And although the counteroffensive has effectively failed and stalled, and Zelensky has finally admitted this, he still retains the support of, of the people. But nonetheless, he's under serious pressure, probably more pressure than he has done, has been under since the start of the war, since February and March 22. And it also comes at a time where he seems to be losing a bit of popularity among some of the international leaders that are so important for the um, Ukrainian war effort, the, the arms suppliers, who are getting maybe a bit a bit, a bit irritated with him. So all, all these things are coalescing and it's it's definitely, there are definitely problems in Kiev and in fighting. There is meant to be an election next year in Ukraine, presidential election. This is likely not to happen. And this, again, is becoming a flashpoint. And it, it just so happens that at the same time, roughly the same time, there is on March 17th most likely to be a Russian election, which Vladimir Putin is almost 100% well, will, will win. He hasn't yet declared his candidacy. It's probably happening next week. But this infighting in 
Kiev and in Ukraine really strengthens Putin, which which I'll come on to a bit later. So interesting story there in itself, not particularly surprising, but the language and the timing is still very important. Thank you so much, James. Well, let's move to Russia then. You wrote a very interesting story about some of the protests really in Russia that are calling Vladimir Putin a liar. What's happening there? Right. So um, regular listeners to this podcast, David, will of course remember that I spoke about this at some length uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was one of the first reports in English on on this group called Putdamoy, which means the, the way home or the path home. And it's to recap very quickly for those who, who missed that. It's a grassroots organisation by wives and mothers of soldiers mobilised mainly in September 22 when uh, there's partial mobilisation. And uh, Russia dragged in about 330, 320,000 men to fight in the front lines in Ukraine. This was at a time when the Russian army is very much on the back foot and was getting pushed back pretty much everywhere in Ukraine. And uh, Putin badly needed to change the momentum of the war. And he did this through this mobilization, having promised people that um, the the war, this special military operation that he calls it, uh, would not impact ordinary lives. He then mobilized and, um, and basically called everyone out. Now, at the time, Russian recruitment officers basically said, oh, unless they're professional soldiers or they've specifically put up their hand, they won't be sent to frontline fighting and they'll be back in a few months. None of this, of course, as we know, has come to pass. And the men who were recruited then are still on the front line. They've rarely had a break. They've done 15 months of warfare, etc. And the, the mothers and wives and sisters or whatever of these men are just getting incredibly upset and, and they want to have a break. Now, people who listen to this podcast are, are basically, well, what's this got to do with, with the war in Ukraine, so to speak? Well, what it's done is created a, a weakness for Putin. He does have this group of women who are starting to call him out. Now, this is important in Russian society because the women, uh, the wives and um, and, and mothers of, of soldiers generally have uh, a credibility and a voice in society that uh, other people don't have. And and the biggest instance of this was in the 1980s uh, around Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan, when these women mobilised and were able to put some pressure on the Kremlin to persuade them to withdraw out of out of um, Afghanistan. It wasn't the, the decisive factor, but it was a factor. So the Kremlin is aware of this backstory um, and they seem to be getting a bit irritated and a bit nervous. This group, Putdemoy, they have released, they're using this Telegram social messaging system to to recruit people, to to build momentum. They've released some sort of manifesto, they called it, uh, this week in in which they they actually called Putin a liar. They said they'd been betrayed by the motherland. They said, how can Putin stand up in front of everyone and call 2024 the year of the family when fathers are dying on the front line, etc. And they also criticised the Russian military's use of convicts, murderers, rapists, etc., who then get released back in society after a six-month tour of combat and, and in many cases, kill and rape again, etc. So with all this in mind, the Kremlin has started, and, and this is really where the sort of the update from two weeks ago is the manifesto has been released. This group has tried to call for some sort of flash mobs and potential demonstrations in, in Moscow. Of course, we know that protesting in Russia is basically banned. Certainly, all criticisms of the war is banned, and, and this group is not anti-war. They've been very careful not to be anti-war. They're just they're just very angry with the way the mobilisation has been treated, which is in itself tipping onto the sort of anti-war, anti-Kremlin stance. But the point is, the Kremlin's propagandists have now started to call out this group. They've called them agents of Western intelligence units. They've called them their, their telegram channels fakes. They've called them lies, all this sort of thing. British military intelligence has also said that the Kremlin is paying off some potential wives and mothers not to join this group, etc., etc. This is all the Kremlin mobilising to, to snuff out, to stamp out what it sees as a potential threat ahead of this election next year that Putin wants to use to showcase and parade himself as one of Russia's great war leaders. So, and, and we, so we've seen mothers and wives groups 
uh, pop up before in Russia since uh, the start of the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And uh, Dagestan in September 22, around mobilisation, there was some fierce women protesting in the streets. They got stamped out by the local police. And there was another group in Russia's regions around about this time last year, which also cropped up and, and had its leaders detained. So it's definitely worth watching. There is definitely a weakness in the system here. This is a, a very rare form of protest, which is very important to monitor in Russia. And the Kremlin is monitoring it. And I think so should we. Well, thank you very much for that, James. Let's talk quickly, I think, about one more aspect of this, of, of repression and and moving against activists that the Kremlin disapproves of or people who make them very nervous. And I know Jen might want to speak about this later as well. But James, you wrote up a story on the weekend about the, well, the story that the police in Russia have been raiding gay nightclubs in Moscow. Could you tell us about this? Yeah, sure. So, th- so this is this this is really an ex- this is really a sort of culmination of a of a decade long policy that Putin's had to harass and essentially criminalise. I mean, it's not it's, it's uh, homosexuality in Russia uh, was decriminalised in ninety two or ninety three, and so so it's not illegal, but. Uh, it is illegal to promote, it was made illegal in 2012, 2013, I forget, etc. exactly, to promote so-called gay rights propaganda. And it's and on Thursday, the Supreme Court in Russia banned this uh, non-existent nefarious group called the International LGBT Movement, which actually doesn't exist. Now, analysts that I've been speaking to and people who know Russia, etc., consider this a Kremlin ploy to create, well, sort of target a, a nefarious group which will ban a nefarious group as extremists, so there's some level of some sort of international terrorist group, and which means that anyone who's charged with being associated with that group can be sent to prison. Now, uh, analysts and journalists consider this a deliberate attempt by the Kremlin to create ambiguity, which the security forces can then use to basically arrest um, you know, LGBT supporters or uh, gay people, etc., and, and throw them in prison. It wants to do this for two reasons. Um, it wants to create this schism between the West, which the Kremlin wants to create a schism between the West, which is propaganda, like to betray some sort of pronoun-obsessed, multi-ethnic, wokest West, which has gone soft and is reprehensible compared to Russia, which is upholding traditional Slavic family values. That's, that, that's the mission. And by targeting this gay community, it, it really shines a light on, 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 on this strategy. And then the other reason is that it considers the sort of underground scene in Russia, bars, nightclubs, people with alternative lifestyles, this sort of thing, as a potential weakness, as a vulnerability. Not like the wives of men who've been mobilised that we've been talking about, they're mainstream and they're angry. That we're talking about some sort of underground uh uh, sort of groups of people underground who 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 meet up in bars and nightclubs and grumble and and maybe more pro west than the Kremlin likes them to be. We know that in March this year, early this year, police raided uh, quite a few bars in St Petersburg and Moscow and shut them down. And these were considered as some sort of underground bars as well. And I think that this sort of attack on the gay community in Russia and many of the gay community are planning to leave. And the raids on Friday night, which came 24 hours after this Supreme Court ruling, and during the raids, the police photographed hundreds of people's passports, so they got their names, etc., the people who've all been at these nightclubs as a warning. I think it's also about clamping down on this underground mo- uh, sort of conversation which is going on in Russia, which might be anti the Kremlin, but just force underground. So there's two two reasons there, David, um, and, and definitely a story to look out for, and has a very strong war focus as well as, as a very strong human rights and gay rights focus. Well, thank you so much, James, for talking us through all of those updates. Let's now go to our guest. Just to reintroduce her, Jen Stout is a journalist from Shetland who's covered the war in Ukraine since March 2022. Prior to the full-scale invasion, she was working in Moscow on a fellowship and has previously worked for the BBC and specialises in long-form reporting. She's also a radio producer and a photographer. Her work from Ukraine was shortlisted in the Foreign Press Association awards. Jen, thank you so much for coming into the office and and joining us today. Um, 
I've, I've introduced you there, but could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work in Ukraine to, for our listeners? Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, so I, I do wear many hats I'm doing radio and photos and text. I do quite a lot of live radio reports, usually for BBC outlets when I'm in Ukraine. And I did used to work for BBC Scotland and I was actually a radio presenter and producer in Shetland. So it's really nice to be back in a radio studio. It, feel, it feels like home. I I had a long, I mean, my, my entire life has really been focused on, on, on Russia and on Eastern Europe since I, I learned Russian in high school in Shetland, which you can't do anymore, sadly. And... It was a long obsession, I suppose. Uh, I, I, it took me too long to get there for various reasons, and I finally got to Moscow in November 2021. Things were really already closing down to a large degree. I couldn't really do a lot of reporting for various reasons, and obviously I wasn't there long before we had to leave. The fellowship was ended quite abruptly just a few days after the full-scale invasion. I wanted to leave anyway, morally. I didn't want to stay in the country. We ended up going to... I went to Vienna and from Vienna I decided to go to Romania to the, the southeast on the Danube, which is a border crossing on the Danube River, where thousands of people were coming from Odessa and Mykolaiv. And because I can speak reasonable Russian and they were kind enough to speak Russian with me, I covered that border post for a few weeks, got a bit of training and then, and then went to Odessa and things sort of went from there so I ended up doing two further trips two months at a time in Ukraine uh, on a shoestring budget I'd say and being very freelance which kind of suited me because I like to stay in one place for quite a while get a feel for things really understand what's going on and I suppose that allowed me to do more in-depth long-form reporting where you're trying to highlight the importance of history in this war or rather history's abuse and misuse the, the the long context and identities and loyalties and all these thorny issues which you can tell so much better through stories than diatribes well Jen could you tell us a little bit more about your reporting then what stands out in your memory I know you spent quite a bit of time around Kharkiv I did so I went I'd been to Kharkiv 2018 just on a on a holiday in November in the snow because I'm that's my, my idea of a holiday and I've met all these fantastic people I just went on my own met all these incredible people who are activists and artists and uh, musicians and writers and they were even at that time they a lot of them were involved in supporting the army in fundraising for the army and sometimes that meant fundraising for militias who were they were then already part of the army but there's a long history of that and they were perhaps right-wing militias and these were LGBT activists and they would explain to me the potential of a Russian invasion is so much worse for us than holding our nose and helping out these guys and I think it's those kind of that really you know you really have to sit back and say gosh I've never had to make that kind of choice right so I learned a lot from these guys I went back to I mean Kharkiv obviously in the early days of the war it was I mean, you remember, it was so heavily bombed by aeroplanes. The city centre, which is so beautiful and historic and unique, um, was very heavily damaged. And my friends were still there. You know, most of them didn't leave. They were baking bread and doing dashing out in between bombardments to deliver bread to metro stations and to soldiers. And so when I went back to Kharkiv, it was the 1st of May, I think, 2022, and there had been a bit of a, a lapse in the bombing. It wasn't too dangerous um, <laughs> by some standards. And it, and it was very shocking to see what had been done to it and shocking to be in this sort of huge bustling city, but, in, but it was completely dead silent. There were very few people there at that time. But it also was so much easier to be there. It's very hard to explain, but worrying from afar was much worse than being there and actually seeing my friends again and, and giving them a big hug. And then reporting. I reported a lot from Kharkiv over the months, over that year, also from the villages around Kharkiv. And I suppose what, one thing that really sticks in my mind is in that early period in May, someone invited me to the secret bunker gig and it was a concert with Serhi Jadan, the poet and rock star and a bunch of Kharkiv musicians and they were live streaming to another party in Berlin. The whole point, as with everything at that time and now, was to raise money for the army. And so I go in this bunker and it's it felt a little bit like being in like an East London squat 15 years ago, those things that don't exist anymore. This kind of really great atmosphere, really interesting people and this great sense of purpose um, and a lot of solidarity, a real feeling of solidarity, which is what I found all the way throughout Ukraine. And it that was an incredible moment to be there because it really made me think about war and about fighting and about my own knee-jerk pacifism that it's so easy to hold that position when you've grown up in absolute peace and stability, right? 
you never really have to think about it. But what struck me in that bunker was that my friends there and the people I was meeting, when they talk about money for the army, it's not some distant army. It's not. It's their. It's their relatives, their dads and their mums and their uncles. And if they can earn them another ten quid by doing another song and trying to get some more people to donate, that means they might get night vision goggles when a Russian soldier is shooting at them. I mean, it doesn't get more personal and real than that. So there were a lot of instances like that really. That, yeah, it really helped me to change my thinking or just understand what my thinking was when I hadn't had to think about that before. Jen, some of your stories you've picked up from people on the move, either refugees leaving Ukraine or on the move within um, Ukraine itself. Could you talk to us about the, your experiences of Ukrainian night trains? I mean, we, had, we, we talked briefly about this before we came on air. And I don't know if Joe's got experience of this as well, but certainly the, the Ukrainian night trains I've taken have been, have been rather interesting. What, what have you found? Yeah, they're fantastic. A very good argument for nationalised rail services, one could argue. The night trains are affordable. They, you get a cup of tea and a coffee. They have You can lie down on a natural bunk. It's mind-boggling to imagine that in this country. So I relied on night trains very heavily because you're crossing such massive distances and I didn't have much of a budget. And they're also, as you say, a really, really good way to meet people, particularly in third class in the Platzkart, which is an open carriage with about, I think it's about 48 bunks. So it's a kind of sea of feet and people and it can get terribly hot, but it is brilliant for meeting people and talking to people. And I took a lot of these journeys. Uh, the, the one that sticks in my mind, though, was a train that was almost empty because it was going from Odessa to Kharkiv in in, on that, that, that end of April 2022. And it was, <laughs> I remember being on the station, like blackout in, in Odessa at the station at night waiting for this train and asking people, because you couldn't, there was, there was no light at all and saying, is this the train to Kharkiv? And this woman saying, no, why would Kharkiv, it barely exists anymore. Why would you go there? And it's just a reminder that, you know, like these perceptions of, of different cities and how badly they've been affected exist both in the West and within Ukraine themselves. And people often tell you, oh, that place just doesn't exist. And you think, no, I can get a train there, actually. But yes, on that train, I talked to, there was a conductor, a really young guy called Artem, and he was a native of the Kharkiv region, of the oblast. And he just spoke so seriously. We were watching the sort of lovely scenery go by in spring day, and, and he spoke about his job with Zaliznitsa being his part in the war effort because, as we all remember, and still today, the trains were such a massive, crucial part of the resistance, both civilian and military, helping people move across the country. Um, and, you know, the, the, I remember the train was late because of some shelling somewhere, but there's a very dense network of, of tracks in Ukraine, thanks to sort of Soviet-era industrialization, And so the train was a little bit late. It just diverted onto other tracks. And this young man was so apologetic. And again, I just <laughs> comparing it with trains here just made me have a laugh. And I told him and he thought it was funny, too. I would say your experience sounds wonderful. Uh, when I went from Kiev to, to Lutsk on the night train, because of my faffing around and losing the ticket, which I'm sure at some point the entire story will come out, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think Dom Nichols actually is ready for this to come out either, but I, I wasn't served a tea after, after my performance there. So your, your experience sounds a lot smoother. And I'm sure Joe will want to come in a bit later and explain some of, it, some of his um, experiences on U- Ukrainian trains. But Jen, can we move to something a little, I mean, really... I say sadder, it's just utterly tragic. I explained before we came on air that the last time we interviewed Victoria Amelina was, it was it, I think, in April, and she was killed by a Russian missile, I believe, at the, well, she, her death was announced at the beginning of July. One of the things that's clearly struck you, and I can see this through your reporting in your time in Ukraine, is the role of writers like her in this war. Could you talk to us about that? What do you mean by that, and what have you discovered? The role of writers is something I realised because I, when I, I, I fell by accident into the Lviv Book Forum, the book festival, as was happening last in 2022, despite the situation, it was happening in person. And I sort of got a lift across the border with, with some foreign writers. And it was really this incredible gathering where I got to meet and hear from a lot of Ukrainian writers, poets and playwrights and novelists. And of course, one of them was Victoria Amelina, um, who was a, an extraordinary person. Um, a complete everybody's irreplaceable of course but the the gap that Victoria leaves is quite hard to fathom um, she had such an influence on so many people uh, she she did not take herself that seriously she made me laugh an awful lot but she was extraordinarily clever and she had this ability to sum up and explain to foreigners in particular the great sweep of very complicated 20th century history, especially in Ukraine and Russia and that part of the world, but with passion and with clarity 
and yeah, it just leaves a, a gap that can't ever be filled. The Lviv Book Forum was an extraordinary time. They, they, they held it again the next year with Hay Festival, so you can actually go and, and sit in the basement in Lviv University and listen to people debate the future of, of Ukraine, debate the values on which the country is built on. I mean, and that's something I saw in Kharkiv a lot, a lot during air raid sirens and actual bombardments. There'd be people in basements saying, you know, what are the values that our, our revolution was built on and what about Maidan and how do we carry this forward? It's an incredible cultural scene that's so important and I also in Lviv I met some of the Pen Ukraine guys and so that's the Ukraine chapter of the International Pen Organization the Writers and, and Freedom of Speech Organization and they do what I would call the kind of literary activism you know so they uh, they hire a minibus and they go off to occupy, de-occupied territories particularly north of, of Kharkiv region and, and Donetsk region and bring books to places where the Russians had burnt them all or destroyed the libraries I ended up on a few trips with them and just I learned so much I learned so much and I'm just I'm in their debt and and it really made me think about the role that they play in the war Jen there's just one more question from me but then I'll open the floor to James and Joe who I know will have um, some thoughts and questions as well but out of all of your reporting and travel in Ukraine what stories do you think are underserved by us journalists where do you think we should be paying more attention to potentially that maybe we're not as ever I think it's depth I think it's context that sometimes we we miss in our rush to report. I mean, breaking news is important. News is important. I'm a journalist. But sometimes I think we, particularly going back to stories, we're not so good at. I remember, I mean, you probably remember it too, Fergal Keane did this quite a lot, and he had spent a lot of time in Ukraine since the invasion in 2014. And he, he kept going back to see this one couple, Anatoly and Svetlana, and he just said clearly he just loved them. He was blown away by their hospitality, by the way that they dealt with life and everything that had been thrown at them. And he was going back to inform us about what happened to to them and their lives. And I mean, of all the stories I've heard or read from Ukraine, that's the one that stuck with me because it it, it touches you emotionally, doesn't it? And it and rather than that thing of like, oh, yeah, there's a story about someone and it's the worst day of their life. And then you never hear about them again. You just you don't know what happened next. I also think, I mean, what I'm particularly interested in and I think isn't covered very much is the context and history of of Donbass and and what that region actually means, actually is. And I think that's a really crucial question for the future of Ukraine, for Ukraine's unity and how the society is built, the nation is built in in the coming years is is, is how did it end up like this and and what happened in the 20th century? This is all really crucial. And again, it's things that that Victoria used to speak about a lot because history is is very much alive and burning in in this current situation. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for answering my questions. Joe Barnes. Um, Yeah, no, thanks for joining us. And yeah, lots of stories about trains, including people just often just ignoring the air raid sirens and standing on the platform not to miss their train, which is I always find quite amusing how sort of people yeah <laughs> shut their ears off to the, the sirens the longer they're in Ukraine for. But I wanted to ask you, I know you, you, you said to David beforehand, you're not a, a military expert and you don't call, don't want to sort of speculate how the war is going to go, but what about... The how are people feeling about it in in Ukraine? It's been a while since I've been, but like actually, like you hear a lot more pessimism now. Like the counteroffensive didn't come up with the right results that everyone wanted. Sort of on the di- diplomatic side, like confidence is low. But what is what is the sort of the morale like in 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 Ukraine at the moment? Do you feel? It's it's a difficult it's a difficult one because they don't have any choice. No, none of the people I know are going to turn around and say, "Do you know what, lads? Uh, this has all gone on a bit too long, hasn't it? And it's a bit, it's a bit miserable. So let's give it up." I mean, they they don't have any choice. It's completely existential, kind of life or death, exist or don't exist. So there's no. I I haven't heard among people that I talk to regularly a sort of criticism of the Ukrainian government or of Zelensky. They're they're just. I think there's more frustration with the West and the conversation that we have here with this kind of, oh, the fatigue, oh, we're so fatigued. And as, um, I mean, Timothy Snyder so so succinctly describes, um, I think, on the podcast yesterday, this idea of the stalemate um, being such a bad analogy, such a lazy analogy, and says far more about our psychological, slightly childish reactions to a, a war taking a long time, as of course it does. So I think nobody was really... 
under massive illusions that it was going to be over quickly. Of course, there was the counteroffensive last year, but I didn't know anyone in Ukraine who just thought that could be repeated and repeated and they would just be taking back Crimea quickly, except maybe some people in the West who were in the west of Ukraine who are a little bit more distant from the war. But I spent more time in Kharkiv and, and Donetsk region, and there people are very grimly pragmatic, I'd say. And could you could you just tell us a bit about life in Kharkiv? I was again, I was there last time I was there. It's a, a city I've spent a bit of time in over the years. And it was slowly building back to life from the last two times I've been there. And like the, I think the the zoo was set to open and stuff like that. So how what is yeah, what is life like in, in Kharkiv at the moment? Well, I've not been in Ukraine for eight months because I've been writing a book, but I'm going back on Thursday happily, very happily. I mean, I, yeah, obviously I keep in touch with people there. They're, as I say, very <laughs> stoic. Uh, they know that there's going to be energy strikes probably. They'll resume Russia will start trying to freeze them into submission, which won't work because it didn't before. They've got their generators ready. They know it's going to be a bit tough, but they'll keep going. Nobody really wants to leave. And yeah, I mean, I remember that that thing where Kharkiv went from being an almost silent city to, to one where it was bustling and the trams were working again. That was an incredibly exciting day. The trams got up. Um the, the, one of the main questions in Kharkiv at the moment is rebuilding and reconstruction. And these conversations are going on, even though the war is, is still going on and there is still strikes in Kharkiv. And it has to be. And that's really where it gets very interesting, where the politics get interesting. Is this going to be a more democratic process or is it going to be a sort of top-down international investors, Norman Foster, plate glass everywhere process? I think most of the people in Kharkiv I know would be not in favour of the latter, I'd say. Jen, I've got a quick question, if I may. I mean, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your your thoughts. Really thoughtful and really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to reading your book next next year. But this the image of these book activists, these going out and and taking books back to um, to areas around Kharkiv, which had been recaptured by the Ukrainian army last summer. And you said he learned a lot. Can you describe the reaction to people they found in the, in the recaptured areas, the, the, the sort of older, poorer people who may have been trapped and unable to leave when they were given books and what it meant for them? I mean, presumably these books were in Russian rather than Ukrainian? No, the books are in Ukrainian. That's very much the point. Yeah, very much the point. But but but, but could the people in that predominantly Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, could they read the books if they're in Ukrainian? Yes, of course. I think this is a big misconception, misunderstanding about eastern Ukraine. Everyone there can speak Ukrainian. Everyone I've met, I've asked many people about this because I've written extensively about the language issue, the language politics. People are taught Ukrainian in school. They have been for a long time. And it's not a problem for people to be able to speak and talk in Ukrainian. It's more of a a political point and something that's stirred up a lot by the Kremlin, you know, the recent years of decommunization, perhaps changing street names, removing some of the glorification of Soviet history and Russian language being all bound up in that, of course. So no, the books are in Ukrainian um, or in English, actually. Most of it was, at the time that I was I was watching them do this, um, it was English books as well for little kids to get into English because that's what a lot of them wanted to do. And it was, I mean, it was really joyous. It's a children's author, Katerina. I remember her going to libraries and doing, just doing events with kids. And it might sound like they actually need gas and heating and, and more supplies. And they absolutely did. But they also need to have fun. And they need to have contact and feel like people from the west of Ukraine are caring about them and talking to them. They also, I mean, I on the trip that I went with them, this was late last year, we went to the village where Volodymyr Vakulenko had lived and we met his mum and stepdad and his son Vitalik. Volodymyr went missing in during the occupation in March that year and they were still hoping at that time that, that he was in prison somewhere but it turned out later that they had just tortured and shot him and left him on the side of the road. So that was part of what Penn Ukraine were doing as well, was trying to help Elena, his mother, or and get this story out as well, like tell this story. And because of my luck in sort of falling in with him, I, I met Elena and I kept in touch with her for a long time, covered that story for the new humanist. And, and again, Victoria Amelina was hugely helpful in, in me understanding the context of Ukrainian writers being persecuted by Russia. This is nothing new at all. This is a long story. Well, thank you very much. That's, I mean, really interesting. It sounds like some great reporting. We look forward to reading it in your book. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you, Joe and James. Jen, James there mentioned your book. Can you tell us about it? Um, what's the title? What's it about? And what have you chosen to write about? Yes, happily. So the title is Night Train to Odessa. 
It will come out on the 2nd of May next year. The book came about, so deeply reported features are my, my great love. You know, this is what I love doing. Every, you know, when you're, every story you get, you say, oh God, that would be so interesting if I could just stick on that. And that was always my thing. And I thought, well, with a book, it's really just going even deeper. It's a story about a person going to report on a war. But within that, there's many other people's stories too. And there's a, it's a snapshot in time. It's, it's me going to Russia. Russia part is quite brief because I was only there for a few months and I wasn't reporting there. So it's more impressions. What it was like to be in that society as we edged towards war, that kind of very weird contrast in Moscow where nobody was talking about it. But all my Ukrainian friends were talking about it because they were, you know, in Kharkiv, they were 40 kilometres from this massive build-up of Russian troops. So, that, yeah, the very jarring reality of being in Moscow at that time, then reporting in Romania and reporting throughout Ukraine, there's a big, there's many people's stories and many of the characters are sort of people that I became very good friends with. It's not geopolitics. It's not a sort of a history book. We've had, there's been a lot of fantastic history books out recently. Um, but I, d- I am very interested in the history of Ukraine, of that region. And I think it's really important. But I do a kind of show, don't tell. So I try and tell this story through anecdotes, through places, because places for me are huge and I tend to fall in love with them. So there's a lot about Odessa, about north of Donetsk region and Kharkiv region and and hopefully, I mean, my hope is that I can spread a bit of, I can make you fall in love with them too, with these places, which have the potential to be such wonderful, amazing places once there's peace. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Jen. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Jen, we'll come to you last. So Joe Barnes, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'm just reading the uh, Washington Post has done a long read on the wangling before the counteroffensive was launched in, in Ukraine. And so I hope to finish it later today once I've done writing and with you on the pod. But uh, just some sort of the top lines from this, which I find are interesting. And it's it's more sort of disagreements between the US and Ukraine over how the counteroffensive should have been conducted. So Ukraine insisted on attacking in three prongs, two through the south, uh, aimed at hitting the coast of Azov and one around Bakhmut where the US said they should have put all of their resources into a single push. Um, and where it was, they, they seem to think that US military officials, after they con- conducted these tabletop games, sort of simulations, thought that Ukraine would have been able to reach the Sea of Azov and cut off Russian troops in the south in 60 to 90 days. But as we know, that's not happened. And it's, yeah, it's just sort of interesting to see the fallout of as the offensive sort of culminates and comes to a sort of a spluttering end as sort of, yeah, now we're in the full depths of winter. That, yeah, that, that sort of, that, yeah, just the fallouts. So I just find reading these things to be, yeah, quite weird at times that there's a lot of blame games where, where potentially they shouldn't be because it's not the Western guys doing the fighting. They're just handing over the means of fighting to Ukraine. And yeah, it's Ukrainians losing their lives and limbs and, loved ones, etc. for the call. So yeah, it's just interesting to see and I recommend reading that if you can. Thank you very much, Joe, and thank you so much for your reporting today. James Kilner. So just to give listeners a brief update from The View from Riga, where I've been for about a week, which is obviously an important place for us to keep checking in on because there's borders Russia and, and, and Belarus. And The View here is very much that Putin has is, is sort of never been more, well, He's never been more dangerous since the start of the war. He's he's seen off this stalled counteroffensive in in Ukraine. He's patched together his international credibility in Central Asia, signed deals with North Korea, Iran, rearmed, reorientated the Russian economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's amassing hundreds of thousands of men once again. And the view very much is let's hope the West doesn't get too distracted with Israel and elections, etc. So yeah. It's it's the view from Riga I'm going to leave you with, David. Thank you very much, James and Joe. Uh, Jen, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? My last thought is, yes, let's listen to people in Riga and Estonia and Lithuania and Romania and Poland and all the people who actually have been warning of the danger of Russia for so many years rather than getting stuck in our own slightly myopic um, safety and comfort over here and saying, oh, gosh, isn't this going on a little bit too long? Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. 
or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 